I'm Becky and welcome to another episode of the Salty Mums podcast where we explore motherhood from a Christian perspective through women's stories and wisdom to help us remain the salt of the earth in today's culture. Hello and welcome back. I'm sorry the podcast is a day late again. Um, Unfortunately the winter bugs have started it in our house and if you saw me on Instagram yesterday and you can maybe hear my voice still a little bit um, you'll see why I wasn't sat editing the podcast yesterday. I just did not feel up to it at all but I'm feeling much better today so we go on. Anyway if you have given birth to a child uh, whichever way it's come out you will know that giving birth, pregnancy, um, breastfeeding if you choose to do it, changes your body significantly. And that can be hard enough for for any of us, really. I mean, I'm not going to go into a long list of all the havoc caused on my body by birthing, particularly two rather big boys. Um, (laughs) Although, one of the side effects of pregnancy I didn't know you could have was changes to your eyes. So when I had an eye test after having uh, my third, they told me because of pregnancy, I developed a mild astigmatism on one of my eyes. So yeah, add that to the long list of havoc created on my body. But um, in all seriousness, for, for some people, particularly those who are maybe recovering from eating disorders or, or still have eating disorders when they fall pregnant, pregnancy and the, the changes to your body can be particularly difficult. And I wanted to explore how that looks for for some mothers. So I was really chuffed when Hope Virgo, who is a campaigner on eating disorders, but also uh, recovering from an eating disorder herself, and as a Christian and as a mum, offered to come on and talk to us about this issue. And I think like so many of the issues that we've covered over the last two seasons, this is another one that just doesn't get much airtime in, in church when there will be people suffering with eating disorders or recovering from eating disorders and so I want to get this chat out there this education this information out there not just for the people who are going through maybe going through this but also for for us to learn how to better support other mothers around us so please think about sharing this episode on your social media or through whatsapp or messages to friends and here's the episode me oh it's my absolute pleasure this is a a topic that I've really really wanted to cover today so um it's a pleasure having you on so I hope tell us a little bit about yourself and your family uh yep so I have a I guess firstly so I have a 13 month old baby um which is wonderful um yeah it's been an interesting year kind of feel like when you have a baby your life just turns itself on its head which I'm sure others can relate to um and yeah everything (laughs) changes massively I'm one of those mums who is constantly talking about sleep and obsessed with sleep but I have a baby that also never sleeps so it's been quite an interesting year with that um but outside of being a mum I also um campaign um Uh, around eating disorders so currently trying to make sure that every single person with an eating disorder no matter what they look like can access treatment and support and I've been doing that for probably about six years now so before having Joshua did a lot of kind of traveling around the world did a lot of work in schools um, and then obviously since having him have gone on kind of doing stuff but quite like doing a lot of it remotely as well 
um, and obviously rely a lot on my husband to kind of pick up the childcare when that happens, which is, yeah, what it is. Um, and then, yeah, kind of outside of that, uh, yeah, I, I spend, I, I do spend most of my time probably talking about eating disorders, um, kind of even in my personal life as well. And I also go to church, which is a big part of my life too. Um, and I'm also I'm very interested um, in kind of faith in respect to eating disorders and kind of all faith groups, making sure that people affected by eating disorders can feel really included in that environment. I think with eating disorders, they're, they're still massively stigmatized and still massively misunderstood. So a huge mission of mine is to try and just challenge that and change it. That's awesome. And so did you work for yourself then in that campaign? Are you, are you aligned to a certain charity or anything like that? Or do you just work yeah, so I be- yeah, so I began as a freelance, well, a freelance, I work for myself and do, do a lot of it on my own. So my campaign, Dump the Scales, I've kind of run it on my own. But then about two years ago, um, during massive, like midway through the pandemic, the need for eating disorders massively increased. And I realized that I needed to have other kind of experts around me kind of coming at it from different areas. So I formed a group of people. Um, so I've got like a geneticist, I work with a clinician, a psychiatrist, um, a carer, um, and we all basically now work together to campaign on this issue more broadly. And it's, it's definitely helped me in the sense that I think when you campaign on eating disorders and probably anything really, it can get really heavy at times. And the stories that I hear are just so harrowing and so upsetting a lot of the time that it's now nice to have other people around you that you can kind of share that with as well and share the load with when you get so frustrated about the lack of an action. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine. So let's start off with what might sound like an obvious question, but I think there's probably a bit of misunderstanding around it. What What is an eating disorder? Good question. Um, and there is, like you said, a huge misunderstanding about it. So historically, people used to always think of eating disorders as firstly something that only affected white teenage underweight girls. Um, and people also used to always think that it was someone going on a diet that went slightly wrong or someone may be obsessed with their body and so was trying to change themselves. What we now know, because of a lot of the research that's kind of happening at the moment, and again, this is research that's very new, is that actually an eating disorder is a mental health issue. It's caused by an individual going into energy deficit, and that then triggers the brain to respond in a certain way. So if you look at the brains of people with anorexia, for example, we know that someone with anorexia, their brain has shrunk a considerable amount, the more unwell they get. And that's why in recovery from something like anorexia, you have to start eating, you have to start fueling yourself in order for your brain to properly recover and to properly repair as well. And I think the other thing, just to kind of add, there's obviously a lot of different types of eating disorders, and it's it's really unique to every single person who has one, the kind of experiences that people go through. But something that I always kind of talk about is the fact that it can really affect and impact anybody, no matter what your age, your gender, no matter what your race, your background, and particularly when you're looking at it from a weight perspective, we know that actually only 6% of people with an eating disorder are actually underweight. So there's this 94 94- people that go against that stereotypical image that a lot of us have in our heads absolutely because I've heard a lot of chat recently about eating disorders versus disordered eating mm. um yeah so what what's what's the difference between those two for instance yeah and actually this is something that people always ask whenever I go into schools oh, and do sorry <laughs> no no it's fine it's, it's a really it is I think it's and I think the problem is is that there's not a I'm sure there is like a definite definition, but for me and for a lot of people that I work with as well, it's it's like on being on a spectrum of something. So 
how I think about it is you have this continuum of eating disorders. At one end, we have someone who has a really good relationship with food, with their body, with exercise. You have someone who's a healthy weight for their height um, and has like proper kind of cognitive functioning. Then you look at the other extreme, which is the full-blown eating disorder. And then in the middle, we have any sort of disordered eating. And that could be people purging. It could be people who do intermittent fasting. It could be people who excessively exercise. Um, and I would argue that probably a lot of people fall into that disordered eating kind of box, personally. And for me, that's always a bit of a red flag that actually something's maybe going on. Maybe we need to be a bit more aware of that, particularly if we're looking at it from a preventative measure. But the difference, the main difference, how we know when someone has then got an eating disorder is they change their kind of functions around food. So they probably stop going out with their friends. They maybe don't go to restaurants that they don't feel comfortable eating in. They maybe start excessively exercising a lot more. They get really distracted at mealtimes, kind of feel completely unengaged. And they're then properly thinking about food and exercise and calories a lot of the time, maybe unable to sleep at night, ruminating a lot. And that's when it crosses over into actually they need to go and get that support. But what I always kind of caveat that with is if in your gut you're supporting someone and you think they have an eating disorder or you think something's not right, you have to get in there as soon as possible before their brain chemistry changes. Yeah, it's quite a thin line, isn't it, between disordered eating and eating disorder in the sense of how quickly you could I guess those um behaviors could creep in from sort of a extreme diet to yeah to something else but um but you you got into this um when you first well because you've developed eating disorder in, in your teenage years um so how how old were you and and can you think of anything that triggered it in the beginning or or was it just yeah, did it just sort of creep creep on without any particular triggers as such? Yeah, <laughs> so I was, I kind of first, I first developed it when I was about 12, 13 years old. Um, so I've thought a lot about this over the years, kind of having therapy and kind of, I guess, even like recently kind of talking more about things. Um, so for me, my main trigger, so I, I probably looking at the kind of research would have had a genetic predisposition to develop an eating disorder because we're seeing that is increasingly common at the moment. Um, I also really struggled as a child to kind of process a lot of my emotions and deal with things in a healthy way. And I was also sexually abused when I was 12 years old. And for me, going through some form of abuse left me with these feelings that there was something categorically wrong with who I was. And I really wanted to try and find a way to change that. And I'm sure like other people will be able to relate to that, even if you haven't been abused. I think so many people go through life feeling wrong in themselves. And so we project that wrongness onto our bodies thinking, do you know what? I feel wrong in myself. Society tells me that in order to fix that, I need to change my body. I need to change what I look like. And so for me, it was a combination of trying to fix and change something about me so that I didn't feel wrong. And also numbing all of these emotions, all of these feelings that I didn't want to feel. I had this intense amount of guilt about the abuse. I I found my family life quite difficult at times. And because I didn't talk about it with anyone, because I couldn't communicate what was happening, I had to just numb all of that emotion. But it, like you said, it for me, it did start gradually. It, it was kind of like this six month period where I started to restrict a bit. I did a lot of long distance running to kind of up all of my running. And what I gradually realized over this kind of six months was the more exercise I did and the less food I ate, the better I actually felt about every single thing going on around me. 
And during that six months, this kind of narrative in my head got louder and louder and louder, kind of telling me what I should and shouldn't be doing, how much exercise, what food to eat. And it just became this kind of constant dialogue. And I, 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 in a way, it became a bit like a groundhog day. I'd kind of get up and I'd have the same kind of structure in my day. And every night I'd be like, oh, maybe tomorrow's going to be different. But my brain, without a shadow of a doubt, would be like, right, we're going to do this again and then everything will be fine. And I'd set myself as well, kind of, I guess, alongside that, a lot of these kind of goals in my head. Like if I just eat X amount of food a day or if I lose X amount of weight, then I can stop. But whenever I hit that point, I'd be like, oh, no, I'll just go a little bit further, a little bit further. And that's, I think, the really scary thing with all eating disorders, whether you've got anorexia or bulimia, is they promise you so much, but they never actually deliver on anything that they promise you. Mm. Oh, And um, so when did you realise what was happening was perhaps out of your control what was that sort of point when you yeah when when you realized that point wasn't being achieved and you could but you couldn't stop I think I had glimpses of it throughout the kind of next four years kind of from the age of kind of I don't know 13 to 17 when I thought maybe something wasn't quite right and for me that normally came out in kind of spending time with my friends and I was amazed that everyone else around me could eat and drink what they wanted to and like not exercise and I just couldn't do it and I was like surely other people feel this level of guilt but I didn't want to tell anyone because I was like maybe this is kind of a bit of a weird thing going on for me um but I actually didn't then admit or kind of accept that I had anything the matter with me until I was admitted to an inpatient unit and even then it took three days of being in that inpatient unit and doing a number of exercises there um, with kind of the staff to actually then start to accept that actually this is something is wrong with me and I have to try and do something about it and I think that's that's that is really common but I think something that makes it worse nowadays and I guess this goes back to kind of your point earlier about how there is a really thin line between disordered eating and eating disorders is because in society we've normalized eating disorders we've normalized this really dangerous culture around food and for me, because it was just normal what I was doing, I think that amplified those feelings that actually, no, what I'm doing is fine. Like no one really understands it. And because of that, I just put up this complete wall. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, t- you're totally right about the disordered eating thing, because I mean, for instance, last year I went on the fast 800 diet, which is the one where you have 800 calories a day within what, eight, 10 hours. And people were celebrating that with me. And it it was miserable so so miserable I was horrible I was fatigued I had no energy and yeah I lost a lot of weight quite quickly but boy did it come back on again quickly and but it's just that sort of but that you know effectively I was starving myself I was going below even the 1200 calories um thing but it's so normal and celebrated in in society it's mm-hmm. it's so frightening when you look at it and and you mentioned there about your treatment and I've just read your book and to be honest your your description of you know after going through all that losing weight all the punishment you put through your body your body body through the desperation to lose weight the the treatment sounded hellish for someone who (laughs) was going through eating disorder it was you know being weighed the whole day being structured around food enforced rest not being able to leave competitiveness how how was that path through through treatment for you yeah it was it was horrific <laughs> places yeah. um and I think that's I think that's the really hard thing with eating disorders and the thing that makes yeah makes them so challenging but also probably fuels a lot of the stigma around them as well is that when you're in recovery from an eating disorder 
if it was another addiction, you would cut it out. I'm not saying that's easier to do, but you cut it out. So it's kind of different. But with eating disorders, you have to find a way to bring the food into your everyday. And we also know the only way that a person's brain recovers is by eating. So yes, the whole day was structured around food and it was like breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, snack. And you'd get to kind of 8.30 at night and you'd be like, oh my goodness, all I've done all day is kind of eat and sit around and sit with your emotions and all of that stuff. So I did, I did find it really hard. I think for me, I needed to have that routine and structure and I needed to be in that sort of environment because that was the only way that I was ever going to kind of get to a space where I recover. I'm, I'm a real advocate for people recovering in their kind of own homes and that environment, because we know that some services can be really traumatic for people. And that adds like another layer, but actually for me, I needed to have this kind of space where I could have this kind of constant one-on-one support. And I think that's, well, I guess just to kind of emphasize as I went into treatment like 14 years ago and 14 years ago, there wasn't this massive rush around services. It was, it was different. It was easier in some ways to access eating disorders kind of services. And I remember actually when I was in treatment, there were beds that were available when I was there. And that's the kind of thing we would never see nowadays. We know with eating disorders, there are no beds across the country for anybody to get that support. So I was really, really lucky with the treatment I had at that point. Um, I think the other thing that really helped when I was in hospital was in a weird way, although I found it challenging being around other people with eating disorders because it's a very competitive illness. At the same time, it also helped to have other people around you who understood kind of where things were coming from and understood how you were feeling on a day to day basis, particularly around meal times. And I remember after every meal time, actually, we did have this group where we would quite literally unpack kind of all of our feelings and thoughts around the food. And it sounds really basic. And probably to some people, you think it sounds ridiculous. Like, how can you possibly kind of deconstruct a meal to that length? But actually for us having that space to talk about like the guilt, the fear, the uncertainty, kind of the what's next was just really key because you remove the emotion and then it gives you that space to then actually start to communicate. Absolutely. And I mean, we've talked about your treatment, but I mean, is there any such thing as being cured from an eating disorder or is it just something that you you'll live with for the rest of your life and to some degree? Yeah, so I guess firstly, looking at the statistics, um, we know that 50 percent of people will make a full recovery. 30 percent of people kind of settle in a kind of midway point and 20 percent of people remain chronically unwell for the rest of their lives. The other thing that we're seeing a lot of at the moment um, is a lot of people with eating disorders being marked as untreatable and then being moved on to palliative care pathways because wow. there's nothing that services feel they can do for that individual. I, I'm, I'm very against that as a form of, well, it's not a form of treatment. I'm just against it full stop. And I'm actually working a lot to try and challenge that and change that at the moment. I believe that every single person with an eating disorder is treatable and can fully recover but it's about making sure we've got the right unique treatments that fit those people. I think from my own experience, so I got discharged from treatment after being in hospital for a year. Um, I was 18 years old and I had no idea how to eat without being kind of following a meal plan. I had no idea how to cook. I had no idea to do like really like, I don't know, like mundane day-to-day tasks. I just had no idea how to do it. And I spent kind of three years after treatment, I went to uni, like trying to kind of challenge a lot of those kind of thoughts and processes around food, like trying to kind of fit in a little bit more at uni. And gradually things really started to look up for me. And I gradually began to relax a lot more as well. But for me, I had this kind of realization during the pandemic, actually. I think part of it was that I'd kind of, I'm I'm a bit of a workaholic. And um, 
and was kind of working 24 seven kind of prior to the pandemic and then the pandemic happened and life just stopped. And obviously, because I freelance, I spend my time traveling, going into schools, all of that stopped as well. And there was this kind of like couple of months where I couldn't actually work because schools hadn't yet set themselves up to have external speakers kind of do things on Zoom because of safeguarding all of that sort of stuff. And so I had this period of time where I was a little bit lost, a little bit unsure of where, where I was going. Um, and I also at that point really struggled because the gym shut. And I was kind of like, why am I finding this so unbelievably difficult? Like, what is going on? And I had this realization then that I I was one of those people in that kind of 30% that had just settled in my own recovery. And I kind of settled in this halfway house without really realizing that I'd done it. And so I actually um, decided that I was going to work really, really hard. And I really challenged myself over like the next couple of years to really push myself to actually get to a space where I could, could say that I was fully recovered. And I think for me, I've probably still got a little bit of work to do. I still have some anxieties around food. I still have some anxieties around behaviors. Um, and even going through a pregnancy and then having a baby, like actually that is like a whole kind of can of worms in itself when you've had an eating disorder. So learning to navigate that space now. And actually I was thinking about it today, actually. So I I haven't really been out of the house much today, mainly because the weather's not been great and couldn't get Joshua into the buggy and I couldn't be bothered to have like a bit of a battle with him wanting to get in because I wanted to go out. And and I, I've actually found it really challenging, like not being able to leave the house that much. And I kind of always in these moments be like, actually, do you know what? This is probably really good for my recovery. If I'm still finding this hard and still feeling the fear around it, it means that I've still got work to do. So a lot of it is literally at the moment kind of trying to go against what the eating disorder is telling me, challenging kind of all the beliefs I have around food and really kind of pushing myself and then hanging on to all of my reasons why I want to do that. And a big thing, obviously, now I've got a baby is I really want to be able to experience all of this stuff with him kind of food going out with meals, like being really present, not ruminating. And that's what kind of helps me to get to that space. So yeah, the short answer is yes, people can <laughs> fully recover and people do, but it is a really, honestly, it's a really long road to get there. And for some people, it will take a very long time. Mm, that's beautiful. You have your little one as a focus as well in that recovery to sort of, yeah, it's almost like an internal cheerleader, isn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so anecdotally, um or sort of slightly picking up on things in the news the feeling seems to be that eating disorders in the pandemic well eating disorders in general have increased and that the pandemic might be a cause for that is is that true or is there something else impacting on statistics as well yeah so so yeah the with the, the case of eating disorders has gone up massively over the last couple of years um, I think now they're saying that about 16% of adults and of people aged 16 plus will present positively with an eating disorder at any one point. And we've also seen a fourfold increase in hospital admissions for children, which is just ridiculous. And I think it's really important to remember with all of the statistics that what we see is just the tip of the iceberg of a much greater problem because people aren't getting diagnosed, people aren't reaching out for support. So the issue is currently huge with regards to eating disorders. I think that a lot of people, like you said, have blamed the pandemic for that. And I think the pandemic did have a role to play to some extent. We had this huge time of uncertainty. There was loads of isolation. There was so much anxiety, so much fear. And people found their ways to deal with the fear. Some people went and brought loads of toilet paper. Some people started kind of micromanaging their food intake on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think it did have a role to play. But I think that for too long, 
particularly the government, but also kind of maybe society as well. We've been blaming the pandemic far too much for this. And actually, it's much more complicated than that. There's there is issues around the pandemic, but there's also issues around things like social media. There's also issues around kind of pressures from modern society. And it's all of these things that come together that create this kind of perfect storm kind of on a broader scale for people to then go on to develop an eating disorder. Um, and I think the main thing is, is that we have to remember that in all of these situations and what I actually quite often say, I'm doing a lot of um, carer work at the moment. And in all those situations, it's about not making the assumption that we know yeah. what's caused an eating disorder, because I know people will think, oh, the pandemic must have done it. But actually, that individual might have been struggling with an eating disorder before the pandemic. And maybe it was only picked up when they were at home all the time. Or maybe they found being at home really difficult or they were getting bullied and suddenly it all kind of came to the edge when they were sitting with a lot of their emotions as well. Um, so it is, yeah, it is really, it, I think they are really complicated, but the general fact is we have seen that huge rise. It's depressing, isn't it? Really depressing. Um, and researching you, the most common thing that comes up against your name is the campaign Dump the Scales, which you're probably quite pleased about, but that's the most <laughs> thing that comes um, can you tell us a little bit more about this campaign and what you're comp- what you're campaigning for and why this in particular yeah so I launched I launched Dump the Scales probably three years ago now um which seems ridiculous when I think it's probably it might even be longer than that where what's three and a half years ago probably yeah um, pre-pandemic I, yeah pre-pandemic um Yes, which, yeah, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm still working on it. <laughs> you should be there on those days when I find the campaign so frustrating. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, why are we still campaigning for this? Um, but no, so the reason I launched it was kind of originally was that people with eating disorders find it really difficult to get support on the NHS unless they're really underweight. Um, back in 2016, I relapsed and I tried to get treatment on the NHS and I couldn't because I wasn't underweight. And the whole thing just completely infuriated me. I was, I was really frustrated. I felt completely misunderstood, completely misheard. When I came through that relapse, I um, wrote my first book and started kind of sharing my story off the back of that in schools, kind of workplaces, kind of whatever would listen to me, basically. And the amount of people who came up to me at the end of these sessions and was like, do you know what? I've been through that as well. Or I couldn't get treatment or my loved one couldn't get treatment because they're not underweight. And I was so annoyed that with the whole thing that I was like, right, I'm going to actually try and do something about this. So I launched Dump the Scales originally to just focus on that BMI factor. So to try and kind of get the NHS and get the government to scrap BMI when it came to treatment. And whilst I think it was, it's good, I'm obviously going to say it's good, but it's a good thing to kind of aim towards and move towards. We know it's like, it is much more complicated than just scrapping BMI. We know there's services are massively underfunded. There's decades of stigma. Like it's just the whole way that eating disorders are currently treated is just a complete mess, to be honest, which sounds so negative. I feel like I'm being really negative today, Um, but it's it's just the reality with kind of treatment. So now over kind of the the next three years, the campaign did kind of grow a little bit into being around looking at things like adequate funding. It's looking at training for all frontline staff, still obviously focusing on BMI, but also looking at actually what we can do around palliative care pathways and how can we make sure that every single person with an eating disorder does get treatment. Right now, We've got people who are too sick for treatment and people are too well for treatment. So there's a very narrow window of actually where you can get the support. So just trying to change that. Um, but it's been it's been 
I guess it's been successful in some extent. So um, it's kind of got eating disorders onto the political agenda, which was, I was really like, that was really great. And we got it debated a lot in parliament. I've taken it to Downing Street quite a few times, but then there's always, it does always feel like you get to these kind of, I don't know, these, you have these great meetings and then it kind of stops. And it is that kind of lots of conversation and then no real action being taken. Um, so la two, three weeks ago now, I had a hosted a government round table. Well, again, we were looking at actually what we can do moving forward. And I feel like we're slowly getting to a space where actually MPs are starting to take this really seriously and starting to think actually they need to do something about that. And whether that's because there's a potential general election on the horizon, I don't care, as long as so it's being something that's talked about. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. We just need it to change. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, almost common sense to tell you, and this is probably the thing that strikes me with politics more than anything sometimes, if you intervene at a much earlier stage before someone actually gets, you know, to, to a point where they're really, really unwell, I mean, just purely on a cost basis, that's, that's so much better mm. for the NHS. You know, it's it's just a, yeah, anyway. That all, it does, it, it does like, today. yeah, it really, it does really frustrate me. And I was thinking of it even from my own experience. So I obviously didn't fully recover because I've actually never had any evidence-based treatment but I know what I need to do to stay well. But then obviously when I was pregnant, I found it really difficult. And I ended up being having a consultant alongside my pregnancy, plus the perinatal mental health team. I ended up having my baby three weeks early and was in NICU for a week or so afterwards. And like that cost NHS so much money. And had they given me the evidence-based treatment when I needed it at first, yeah. that would have saved so much of their time. And yeah like it is it just yeah it frustrates me so much but it's like they don't seem yeah I don't know I'm gonna go off on a rant now I'm not going to but <laughs> it's just like and, it baffles I mean, me I'm like why can't they do prevention and then we don't have to worry as much well exactly and and you know then that's just on a purely like cost basis it's it's you know on the human basis like of course it's it's sensible to prevent rather than than treat um I was gonna. I was gonna ask how is the NHS crisis, which is going on, um, you know, with waiting times and resources. How's that impacting on those needing treatment? But I think, I think you've answered that. In, in yeah, many ways. it is huge, and I think it's really. I think it's. I think it's hard because it's not the fault of the NHS. It's, yeah. but it's. It there is. We need to do. We need to do more. Mm. And I think I was thinking about this the other day, actually, with regards to the NHS. Like, I think if people with eating disorders felt heard a lot more then it would probably make it easier for them so you take for example someone with an eating disorder goes into accident and emergency I think there's a huge number of admissions every single week a person will get kind of rehydrated and then they get discharged back out into the community with no support so it's going to keep happening over and over again and that's really worrying for adults it's really worrying for children it's worrying for families it's everyone like like you said the kind of emotional aspect alongside all of that as well and I do honestly think that if people were just a bit more honest with their patients and kind of like, do you know what, actually, we know you're unwell, we can see that, we can hear it, but there's just not the resource. This is what we can offer you in the interim. It might just be what that individual needs to actually feel like they are heard and they're understood. And then they can come up with a bit of a plan of action. So there does need to be, I think, something within that kind of done wider. Yeah, absolutely. So you've alluded to how difficult pregnancy was um and part of the reason I wanted to cover this topic on this podcast being a, a a motherhood and faith podcast was because I think motherhood for anyone whether you've got an eating disorder or not can be 
a time when your body changes immensely you know you don't spring back unless you're very very lucky um and and so I just thought that you know there's probably other mothers out there listening to this who who maybe in the past had anorexia or you know like you somewhere in the middles that sort of um pathway and I just yeah I wondered if you'd share a little bit with us as to your experience of pregnancy and and how difficult that was as a a recovering someone recovering from an eating disorder yeah yeah so um so I guess firstly so I so when I when I wasn't planning to get pregnant (laughs) um this early on so um yeah I I got so we I got married last I got married in uh August 2021 um and then got pregnant like basically immediately which was ridiculous in a way because I've been told I couldn't there was a high chance I wouldn't be able to get pregnant so we'd had all these plans to go on HRT kind of I don't know a year later and it didn't it didn't cross my mind the first eight weeks I think seven eight weeks of my pregnancy I had no idea I was pregnant um I felt really sick a lot of the time um but I put a lot of it down to kind of stress and just being really tired. I was traveling loads with work and just thought maybe that was what was going on. Um, so when I found out I was pregnant, it was a complete and utter shock to both me and also my husband. And I think oh, my mum um, as well. She was like, what? Um, yeah, it was so funny when I, yeah, it was so weird when I told her. I think the night I told her actually, her and my husband basically drank like a bottle of wine each because <laughs> it was like so overwhelmed with the whole thing. Um, but yeah, so I... Yeah, so I I was I was slightly I guess I was kind of excited at first, but then I was also like, what what's happened? Like, what's happened? Like, how is this possible? Like, what's going on? Like, my body's not supposed to be functioning. Like, what am I going to do? Like, how's this going to kind of play out in my life? And I felt so much anxiety and so uncertain about it that I didn't know what to do. Um, so my way of coping with it was we left our flat in London and moved to Bristol, um, so that I could be like near my mum um which actually was which has actually been really really helpful um and I I had to talk a lot to kind of my midwife and my health like the health team about what was actually going on how I was feeling but that in itself was really difficult I got assessed kind of immediately after I like after I obviously went through the whole process of getting a midwife by the perinatal mental health team and the eating disorder team but because I wasn't underweight (laughs) there was actually no support that was available to me and I remember even then I just felt completely fed up with the whole thing. And for the first kind of, I don't know, up until this end of the second trimester, like actually the baby's growth was doing really well. Like everyone was kind of really pleased with it. And because of that, it meant that no one really thought to check in with me and see how I was doing. And whilst I had these kind of fortnightly meetings with a consultant, I kind of didn't, honestly, I didn't feel like I could be honest with her about what was happening. But then when my third trimester hit, I think just the anxiety about what was happening, I felt like my body was changing really, really fast. I felt so uncertain about the future, like everything. And I also had this huge amount of emotion that I just could not process. I didn't want to really talk about it. I was sitting with a lot of it and it was becoming a bit more of a battle to kind of eat on a daily day, day-to-day basis. So I actually raised it um, again with my consultant much more honestly. And I was offered some additional support from the eating disorder team at this point. Um, and I got uh, then got offered some weekly therapy sessions as well, which was really, really helpful. But none of that can really set you up for that bit afterwards when you have a baby and you're 
you're, you're stuck at home. Like that's the reality for me anyway. I, I wanted to breastfeed and I worked really hard. Um, that sounds really bad. I didn't let me know work really hard. I know some people can't breastfeed and that's totally fine. Some people choose not to. But for me, it was something that actually was really, really important to me purely because I thought it would help me stay well and help me stay in that kind of good space mentally. Um, and I was also really lucky, I think, because we'd spent time in hospital after having Joshua. There was a lot of additional support around breastfeeding as well. So I had so much kind of hands on support at the start with it. I don't actually know how I would have done any of this had I not had that time in hospital at the start. Mm-hmm. Um, and that definitely helped. But again, when I had Joshua, there were days that I couldn't leave the house where he was constantly feeding and I felt so stuck and so trapped at home. And then on top of that, obviously, days where in the first couple of weeks, six weeks, you're not really allowed to do much. So I found that really challenging as well. And I'd gone from kind of telling myself that I could eat because I had a baby growing inside of me to then being like, oh, I can eat because I'm kind of breastfeeding to then even now I'm kind of weaning him. It's like, actually, how does this work as well? Like, how do I teach a baby to have a healthy relationship with food when mine's not always been great? How do I keep going when I'm not breastfeeding quite as much? Um, So it's been, it has been really, really challenging. And I think it's something that's not talked about enough because there is so much shame and so much guilt around it. And everyone always says to you, do it for the baby, do it for the baby. But when you're pregnant and you feel just horrific in yourself or you're struggling to even eat because you're so like feeling so sick all the time, telling someone to do it for the baby or a happy mum makes a happy baby. It's like, that doesn't help. You want like proper kind of practical support in order to get to that space. And what, what kind of, yeah, what what helped in those moments if you don't if you don't mind me asking? Um, I think for me, I think for me, I've come so far in my recovery that I never ever want to go back to that space where I was really unwell. I I like when I left treatment, I told myself that I was never going to go into adult services. And whilst I've had some support from kind of outpatients, I was like, I'm never going to go back into that environment. Obviously, eating disorders aren't a choice. And some days it's literally like I sit with this horrible pain and I feel really uncomfortable and I just get through the day. And then I'm like, right, I can do it again today. And I do it again the next day. And I kind of keep going with that. But I think a big thing for me has has been learning to communicate. So really talking about what's been going on and how I feel. Um, it has been around making sure that I've got the right people around me. So and my mum's been fantastic throughout my pregnancy, but also kind of since having Joshua, my husband's brilliant at supporting me. Like my sisters are great. And like, even like some of my friends, like actually having those people that check in with you, kind of see how you're doing um, as well. And and even like my husband will sometimes come in and be like, right, actually, I'm going to make you something to eat because you look really tired or like, what can I get you? And it's that really basic kind of practical stuff was really, really good um, at the start. I think also what was in those moments, what really helped, and this is probably a really silly one, but when I was breastfeeding at the start, um, often I'd be literally sat on the sofa for like, I don't know, three hours feeding yeah. him. <laughs> We've been and Every there. time I try, yeah, it's just, you try and get up and then you're like, oh no, they're still hungry. And oh, they're still and um, but it was like kind of setting myself up. So like not eating was couldn't become a, like I couldn't it couldn't breastfeeding couldn't be an excuse not to eat. So I'd always make sure that I had lots of snacks around me, like lots of water. They're like just really practical stuff like that as well. But I honestly think sometimes with an eating disorder, there's nothing that nobody can do, nothing that nobody can say. And people will say things and they'll, you'll feel like they've said it wrong or whatever they say will be wrong. And so you have to just sit with that pain and be like, do you know, what? I'm going to trust that on the other side of this fear, 
things are going to work out and things are going to be fine. And the more you sit with that and the more you trust that, you get to a space where you know that all of those heightened emotions will eventually pass. And on the other side, things actually are okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think like I talked about earlier was kind of like my whys and holding on to all of those reasons for wanting to recover. I think so much of the time with eating disorders, they make you feel just completely invincible. And you think that if I just do this, like life will be fine, everything will work itself out. But I learned the hard way that actually you're not invincible when you have an eating disorder. And like people who think they are, I don't know, you're, you're not. Like we know that eating disorders have the highest mortality rates out of any other psychiatric illness. Like they're serious mental health issues. And so for me, it was like looking at that and being like, actually, I'm not invincible. What kind of things do I want out of my life? And for me, like, yes, a lot of it's to do with Joshua, but also things like I love like being able to be spontaneous with my friends. I like the fact that I don't have to have Tupperware in my bag all the time. Like all these little things that actually, if you just focus on that, sometimes in those moments where the motion gets too much, you can be like, actually, do you know what? This is what I want. This is what I need to keep working towards. Yeah. Because what you were saying about earlier was saying, oh, you know, uh, do it for the baby. That sounds quite guilt-inducing or actually shaming because it's like, oh, if you don't do it for the baby, then you're a bad mother. You know, how are you – yeah. And it, uh, did, did you find that? Did you find that that that's the way that it's it, – our eating disorders in general dealt with in quite a shaming way sometimes? I think they are. I think a lot of it's shame and a lot of people put fear on you. Like if you do this – if you do this then that's going to do this or that will harm and actually for me when I so I had to have an emergency induction at 37 weeks and I felt I felt so much guilt around it even sometimes when I think about it now I feel like I didn't give Joshua the best start at life and like he's he was he was very small when he was born and we know with people who've had an eating disorder like their babies are going to be smaller like there's so many kind of complications around that and I felt, I have felt an intense amount of guilt around it. And it's something I'm probably still, probably still need to work through it slightly at some point um, when I'm less tired, but it, it has been really difficult. And I think it does put that pressure on you because then you're kind of constantly being judged. And even I think with babies from a weight perspective, if you have a small baby and people have blamed the fact that you had an eating disorder for that, you're like, I, maybe I should have had that extra snack. Maybe I should have tried a little bit. Maybe I should have eaten a little bit more during my or exercised a bit less. And then every time you have a visit from a health visitor who weighs your baby, you're like, oh my goodness, they're still in that percentile. Like, what can I do to shift them up? So it does add a lot of that around. And I think then that obviously stops people talking about it because you don't want to admit to someone that actually, do you know what? I've really struggled to eat the last few days because if you tell them, they'll be like, well, the baby's not going to be doing very well. So it is, like you said, it's, it's, and I think that's why for me, one of my, I feel like I've probably got loads of passions, but one of my big passions is actually making sure that we are equipping mums and like pregnant people to actually know about eating disorders and know how to talk about it and making sure that the right support is then in place for them afterwards. I remember actually um, when I, after I'd had Joshua, my the perinatal mental health team would come and see me kind of, I don't know, every couple of weeks or so just to check in with me. And they used to always come and they'd always judge my mental health on how many times I'd left the house. And I was like, I kind of got to the point where I ended up saying to them, like, actually, do you know what? The more I leave the house, it probably is a red flag that I'm not doing that well. Whereas for other people, they stay, they maybe stay. And obviously the people they'd worked with before tended to stay at home maybe when they had postnatal depression. But for me, that was my coping mechanism to get out. So I felt like sometimes I was kind of educating them along the way being like actually you know, that's a red flag that something's not right and I think that's the thing we have to get to a space where everyone has that knowledge and understanding of eating disorders so they know the signs and symptoms to be looking out for yeah yeah 
yeah I can't agree more and it's, it's just there's enough there's enough guilt in motherhood anyway isn't there without yeah adding to it absolutely <laughs> um and talking of guilt let's talk a bit about faith <laughs> <laughs> not that we should feel guilty in faith obviously did, <laughs> did your um did your faith impact on your road to recovery at all yeah so I guess as a background so I grew up in a Christian family um and went to church kind of as a child uh every Sunday morning we'd go I didn't particularly engage with it for quite a long time I think I went more for the social part of it I was also sexually abused within the church and so even though after I'd been abused I carried on going to church at that point I just completely like unengaged I sang in the choir um, at church and did a lot of the kind of worship at the front and I really enjoyed that part of it but it wasn't something honestly that was authentically done by me I kind of did it because I enjoyed it um and I enjoyed having a bit of a dance at the front like all of that sort of stuff um I when I got admitted to treatment I like basically was like I'm never going back to church again um and completely kind of cut myself up off from it I then went to uni and kind of alongside my recovery I kind of had a bit of a wild time um and after that kind of just kept I don't know just kept living my life the way I wanted to do without really a second thought about it then in June uh 2019 so just before when did the pandemic was 2020 yeah June 2019 yeah, I um, I ended up starting to kind of really question things. I'd been going through like a bit of a rough time. Um, I went through a court case around the abuse that happened to me as a child and kind of it brought back all of these emotions and all of these things. And I remember it was, I was talking to my godmother about it, um, who I was really honest with about stuff. And she kept being like, just go to church, like try it out, like see what you think. And so I did actually go back um, on this kind of random Sunday in June um, I sat in the back of um, actually Holy Trinity Brompton in uh, South Kensington. And I was kind of amazed at the whole, I don't know, the whole setup of the church was amazed that like there were all these people there. Like I, it just wasn't what I was, I don't know, it wasn't what I was expecting. Um, and after that, I kind of went a couple of times over the summer, mainly because when I went, I felt like a bit more peaceful and I kind of felt something. I wasn't really sure what, but I was like, you know what, it's actually not too bad. Um, my godmother convinced me to do the Alpha course and mainly to kind of shut her up, I was like, I'll just go on it and just see what happens. Um, and actually it was on the Alpha course that I then decided that I wanted to become a Christian again. Um, but I still had so many questions and it was it was actually interesting. I, I was thinking about this um, actually last week, I was speaking to someone who is also a Christian, who's also in recovery from an eating disorder. And um, I actually said to her, I've never I've ever admitted this before kind of to anyone else, but I, one of the reasons I became a Christian that weekend um, was I thought that if I became a Christian, I would be fully recovered. And I thought something would just click, something would change. And actually it was really interesting. I went to Japan two weeks after I became a Christian, for two weeks after I became a Christian. And I had this two weeks in Japan where I didn't think about food once. I didn't kind of question things. I was kind of like, oh, this is, and I thought, I, I actually thought I was fully recovered. But then I then came back into normal life and kind of old behaviors kind of crept in again. And I was kind of back to where I was. And I was like, and I was really frustrated. And I went through this kind of, I don't know, kind of this six month period where I really battled with the fact that I was a Christian, but yeah, I wasn't fully recovered. And this was really unfair. And why wasn't I healed? And I was, I was lucky because I had a, like a couple of people that I'd really connected with at HTB who I just kind of offloaded all my questions onto kind of whatever time of day or night I'd be like texting them being like but this is like not right this is frustrating um so I think that it has been something that's been up and down if I'm honest um I've 
I've had moments where I've felt really, really angry and really frustrated that I haven't been healed and I'm not fully recovered. Um, but it's also something that's massively helped me on my whole journey as well. Um, particularly during the pandemic, actually, I spent a lot of time kind of listening to worship music, kind of praying when I was really anxious, I listened to it a lot more. And I really kind of dedicated my time to kind of trying to work on myself in regards to my relationship with God. And I'm definitely one of those people who will just kind of chat away. Um, I say chat rubbish to God. It's probably not rubbish to me. <laughs> to other people, it probably sounds like rubbish um, a lot of the time as well. But there has always, and there there is that frustration. And I think even more so as well, like when I campaigned, there's been setbacks along the way over the last couple of years where I've hosted like events that I thought could have had massive breakthrough and they haven't had the breakthrough. But then I've had other things like I organized um, a protest in London and it was a massive risk kind of stepping out to do it. And I felt like God really wanted me to do it. Um, and I remember in the morning I turned up and thought there'd be like seven people there or something. But there were hundreds of people who turned up to do it. And I was like, no, it's God. So there's those moments when I've really seen God, but also moments when I'm like, do you know what? If like, You know what needs to be done in this moment to change this. Like, why aren't you just changing it? And I think I've got to a space, yeah, where I have to just have that kind of constant, honest dialogue about it. Mm, that's, Yeah. I think I think that's the same for most for a lot yeah. of people isn't it that sort of feeling of unanswered prayer and frustration especially when you're working through um an issue of justice as well um yeah like why not quicker come on <laughs> <laughs> um so you've answered the question I was going to ask I was going to say how would you encourage someone right now going through someone uh, through something similar who's losing faith and feeling prayers are unanswered um, or just with sheer frustration that they've got to face this battle. But um, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, no, so, okay, so I guess, so firstly, I journal a lot. Um, and I do think that for me, journaling definitely helps because it gives me that space again, to be really honest, but also it helps my mind just not wander um, as well. Um, I did the Keys to Freedom course, um, which is a Christian course. And I did it uh, actually with my friend Verity, who is probably one of the nicest people I've ever met um, and has really championed kind of me along this whole process of my own recovery, but also in my work as well. Um, and I think a big thing for me is, is literally that, like having the right people around me who I can offload my frustrations to um, and people who I know are praying for me as well. Um, and then a really basic thing is like just being really mindful of what I'm kind of yeah like what I'm listening to like am I listening to the kind of horrible narrative in my head or am I finding a way to stop that narrative during the pandemic I actually listened to every single one of Christine Kane's sermons that wow. she'd ever done that's a lot um, yeah it was a <laughs> lot of time but actually it really helped because she it just it it really encouraged me it really inspired me um and um I think for me actually it was it was those words a lot of the time that she said that really kind of got me into space I was like actually no I can get through today um I think my biggest my biggest recommendation or biggest suggestion would be even though it's hard and you might not want to go to church like keep yourself plugged into some sort of community and I'm saying that as someone who honestly I've, I've really struggled with churches um I, I loved going to HTB. I thought it was brilliant. I then moved to a slightly smaller church in Parsons Green when I was living in London, which I loved even more. Um, but then I struggled a bit there to kind of, I guess, like find a group of people that really understood my eating disorder. Um, and I guess then I kind of moved to Bristol and kind of found a church here, which I loved. But then since having Joshua, I haven't really gone as much just because 
nap timings I'm sure people can relate to obsession with naps and sleep it doesn't always work yeah. um, and also because my husband doesn't go to church even though when me and Joshua go I do end up spending a lot of my time kind of walking around not really engaging or listening um, so I've had to find kind of new ways to kind of plug into things but I think yeah I think if I could I'd always yeah always keep doing that and I think also trying to find the right people that you can also text and just be like could you pray for this could you pray for this I've got this going on or I feel rubbish at the moment and sometimes I will literally send Verity or my godmother um a message being like do you know what I feel awful in my body today please can you pray and it's that sort of stuff that just really yeah. helps as well absolutely and do do you think you sort of talked a little bit about there about a church not really understanding your eating disorder do, do you think there are certain theologies or practices in the church that can mean that people aren't as helpful as they could be for people um who are struggling with eating disorders yeah so I think and I've, I have done a lot of I guess looked into this quite a lot over the last year or so um mainly because I actually found parts of the pandemic really helpful in the fact that church was just online or there wasn't the kind of mixing bit before and afterwards with food and drinks and things like that um and I and I think so much of the time with church there is and it's it's fair enough because it happens a lot in the bible but there is this obsession around food and everything happens around food and even if you don't want to have the food that's happening around a meal time so at least you've got to have something and I actually found that with the alpha course the, one of the things that they do to entice people to come to Alpha or probably to other things as well is they tell you there's going to be great free food. And so you're like, so everyone else is like, oh, that's amazing. But if you've had an eating disorder, you're like, that's awful. Um, so I think it is, I think it's hard. I think also there's, and I think less so now, but quite a lot of churches have this huge focus on fasting. And whilst we know that you can fast through social media or fast from other things, there is still that focus on food. And for me, I'm someone, I will never be able to fast on food like currently I might be able to if I'm if I at some point fully recover but at the moment I will not be able to fast on food so I think that is something that often fuels people's guilt and the shame around it as well mm. and I think that churches need to find a way to better support people affected by eating disorders and even things like um if you've got like small groups that meet weekly actually what are we doing to make sure that people with eating disorders feel like they can go to these groups even when there's food that's going to be available yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and, and so would you just, just so it's like really really clear for people uh, as an idea would you like there to be a space where there is no food in in church sometimes or is it just about being compassionate and and being aware of, of the, those people who might be struggling I'd say yes there should be a space where there are occasionally yeah no food after services but I also don't think that's realistic and so I say that it maybe is just about being compassionate. It's about it's about not saying, not questioning someone if they're not having something to eat. It's about not not announcing to your entire row of people that oh, I'm going to go and get a slice of cake because I didn't have lunch today or I went to the gym today. It's that kind of whole dialogue that needs to shift and change. And I say that to in corporate settings as well. It's not just churches that get it wrong. It's across the board people get this wrong. Um, so I think it is like just being really mindful and also. I think just being aware that like you could have someone sitting on your row who might have an eating disorder, even if they don't look like it. So don't just think, oh, I can't say that because that person's got an eating disorder um, as well. And I think also like potentially having a space where you can offer a variety of options of food or if you do have a small group and you want to have meals together, 
either give that person the opportunity to come after the meal time if they feel like that's what's going to work for them um or maybe have a conversation with them actually what what food I'm going to cook this week or how's that going to call do you want to cook for us one week or I know for me actually something that I find and it's obviously unique to everybody but I actually quite enjoy the kind of bringing shares because it means that you can choose what you're going to have and then you can kind of be a bit I don't know just you have more choice and actually maybe do things like that once in a while or yeah offer that variety so people do feel like they can still come we do it if someone was gluten intolerant so why aren't we taking into account people with eating disorders absolutely absolutely I mean, we, both my boys have allergies to food and yeah it's that sort of yeah being inclusive isn't it and sort of just making making people welcome by yeah observing their needs and everyone's needs are quite different um but that's what church and family is about isn't it it's about yeah. getting to know people and getting to know what their needs are and serving each other in that um and finally, because the name of the podcast is The Salty Mums and it came from the whole uh, salt and light <laughs> um, quote. How can we, so say if we've got a friend in church, maybe a mum friend and, um, or, you know, not not in church, how, and, and we know that they're either struggling with an eating disorder, have struggled with an eating disorder, maybe haven't been diagnosed yet. Um, how can we be salt and light to those to those people and, and friends on an, on an individual level? Yeah, so I think the first thing is bringing bringing the eating disorder out into the light, because that's the only way that it will heal. And we do that by talking about it. We don't shy away from these conversations. It's remembering the eating disorders aren't about the food, the body image, the exercise, but they're because something is going on for that person. So check in with them, have that space to talk about it. I think really practically, it is about thinking about when you meet up, maybe don't always do it over a meal time, don't always go to a restaurant, like give them again that choice about what works for them. But always trying to have a space where you can have that dialogue um, and talk about things. And I think a big thing in all of it is not trying to fix that person. And I know that I'm like the biggest fixer known. So I'm very guilty of fix, trying to fix everyone. Um, but it is about not fixing someone. It's about literally kind of walking alongside them, like praying for them like surrounding them in your love and helping them to just feel like things are going to be okay and I think within that's holding on to the hope that people do fully recover from eating disorders and sometimes we don't believe that for ourselves so we need other people to kind of champion and believe that as well um, and I guess the other thing if they if they do go to church I think just to kind of emphasize that if you've got a friend with an eating disorder who maybe goes up for prayer ministry like don't assume that they're going up because they want to be prayed for he prayed for healing they might be going up because something else is going on so don't I guess don't just look at that individual and see their whole identity as the eating disorder because there is so much more to them than that absolutely absolutely so it always, it always amazes me every podcast we record this how often the same things come up for all these <laughs> different topics like I was just talking about um single mums in a podcast the other day and she was saying don't just see us as single mums and um Rachel Newham who I interviewed at the beginning of the podcast is talking about hold on to hope for people when you know when they can't see it so um it's just lovely seeing these same messages <laughs> come through again and again um just shows that um you know the sort of shared wisdom I love it yeah. love it well thank you so much hope um if you want to follow uh, hope online um you can follow her on hope at Hope Virgo on Twitter, Twitter or at Hope Virgo. Sorry, I need to put my teeth back in. Uh, underscore um, on in this Instagram. She has three books: um, Stand Tall, Little Girl, 
hope through recovery and you are free even if you don't feel like it is that is that your newest one on hope yeah yeah and I've just read that and it's it's amazing I've I've read it in two 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 evenings I loved it it was um so full of hope and um in both ways like you yourself (laughs) but also actual hope um and um and just really profound lived lived wisdom I loved it it was was beautiful um and also make sure you go and uh, look at her dump the scales campaign have you you still got a um a petition to to sign on yeah so yeah you can find the petition on the change.org website um and then also all over my instagram there's like things that you can do um to support the campaign like writing to your local mp making noise about it sharing your story and i do always say like if there is someone who's listened to this that really resonates with anything to do with eating disorder treatment um please do feel free to contact me and i can share your stories as well i think it is about getting more i want to amplify other people's stories and get more stories out there with the campaign so please do feel free to kind of get in touch if you are interested in that awesome thank you so much before we go can i uh, quickly pray for you yeah sure thanks amazing lord we thank you so much for hope and just what how aptly her name is (laughs) um just this beautiful story of of hope and through um terrible experiences lord and we just pray for hope as she campaigns we pray lord that doors open that um her message is received with with um warmly and with passion and um and that things change quickly and we also pray for anyone listening today who resonates with the story and um we pray for their ongoing recovery we pray that if they haven't reached out yet that they they have the courage to reach out now lord and and ask for help if needed and we pray for the church that it becomes a place lord of um of safety and love for people um with eating disorders in your name we pray amen Amen. thanks so much hey thank you for having me my absolute pleasure bye remember all the links that we've talked about today can be found on our show notes if you've enjoyed the podcast today please do remember to hit subscribe if you haven't done already and even better you can help us reach a wider audience by giving a quick review on whichever platform you're listening on see you next time